Thank you, Clark. <laughs> I am delighted to be here. And I assume all of you are here because you have read all of Dostoevsky's novels and you certainly know how to pronounce his name and you have Bruegel prints hanging around your house. I'm sure that's why we're all here. Um, no, had I not studied at Georgetown and had I not met a particular professor, I would have no idea who these two are. I would not know how to pronounce their names and I certainly wouldn't care about their art and their literature. So I am here as someone who has come to love them by having a wonderful teacher. And I hope tonight really to pass along some things that I've received um, from this wonderful professor. So her name is Olga Mearson. She is such a woman of faith and courage and honor. She is a believer in Christ, a Russian Orthodox believer and a Dostoevsky expert. Mm -hmm. And when I was a sophomore, so my second year at university, I was sitting in her office and she looked at me with about that face, which I got pretty frequently. And she said, Christina, dear, you do realize that you love Dutch painting and Russian literature for the same reason, don't you? No, no, I haven't realized that. And she said, let's talk about this. And that turned into a three-year conversation that turned into an undergraduate thesis. And that's kind of some of the work that I have to share. So if there are things that are insightful, I credit Olga with so much of what I have received. So the first part of this will be interactive, um, which means I want to hear from you. I'm going to put a painting up. And when I put this painting up, some of you the people who have Bruegel prints in your home may say, oh, I know this one. And you want to blurt out the title. Don't do it. Don't do it. What I want to say is I want to see what we notice. So if you know these paintings well and you know the titles, try not to give anything away. Okay, we ready? I'm going to put up a painting and I just want to hear. So just shout it out. You don't have to raise your hand. What do you notice in this painting? Water. Yeah. Water. <laughs> Light. Light. Sail. Sail. Farmer. Or horse's butt. Horse's butt. Yep. Griggle <laughs> is good at that. What's that one? Horizon. Horizon. She. It's very like steep. Sort very of steep. Yeah, kind of a weird point of view. Huh? Someone sticking out of the water. What? Someone sticking out of the water. You mean these little kicking legs over here? <laughs> what is happening? The rock, big rock in the water, looks like a castle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some ruins in the water. Is anybody else feeling concerned about the kicking legs? <laughs> Does anyone have a sense of what this painting, if, if I were to ask, what is this painting about? I just dump somebody off. The How would you? The, yeah. The edge of the road. Somebody's been thrown off, maybe? Mm. How would we explain this? So this painting, does anyone know the title? So I don't remember the actual title, but yes. it's a painting of Icarus. It is, yes. Yeah. So this is Bruegel's Fall of Icarus. So if you're familiar with the myth from Ovid's Metamorphoses, this is uh, this is where Icarus, his father had made him a set of wings. He flew too close to the sun in his pride and plunged below. This is wax wings melted in the sun. So that is the subject matter of this painting. And once we see that, 
The rest of the painting starts to make sense, because if you know Ovid's story well, you'll know that three witnesses to that event were a shepherd, a plowman, and a fisherman. So Bruegel has taken the main point that tells you the story of the painting, and he's made it a small detail that is certainly not the first thing you notice. He's tucked it away. So you kind of come to the painting, you notice some things, but you're not quite sure how to make sense of the whole. But then once you notice it, the whole painting starts to fit together and you're able to explain things you couldn't before. So this, this is what Bruegel does in a series of paintings. And I wanna look at a few of them. He, he buries the lead. That's a term in journalism for what you are not supposed to do. When you're writing a journalistic article, you want your main point to be front and center, first paragraph, so nobody's confused what your subject is. Bruegel takes that thing and he shoves it down in paragraph four, five, six. It takes you a while to get there. So he buries the lead. And when we come to his paintings as viewers, we don't notice it at first. We notice other things, we're distracted, we're confused. But then we notice something, like Hannah noticed, some kicking legs. We notice something that we kind of stumble over, that we're confused by. And that gets us to ask questions and then to make sense of the whole. So Bruegel does this repeatedly. And so does Dostoevsky. And this is what my Russian lit professor was on to about how they do the same thing. They repeatedly take kind of the main point and they hide it. They tuck it away in something small, seemingly insignificant. They distract it, us from it. They kind of put other things in our attentive view like that plowman front and center so that we overlook and we dismiss the actual explanatory key for the whole. And notably, Bruegel and Dostoevsky do this consistently when they're painting or writing scenes that have theological details. So details that talk about God, about Christ, about the story of the gospel. They will hide it. So they, yeah, these patterns of distraction, they kind of implicate us in overlooking or dismissing something. And then we do a double take and we see it and we're shocked that we hadn't realized it at first, but there it is. And that hidden detail turns out to be axiomatic, meaning that it explains the rest. So we're going to look at that phenomenon. We're going to look at a handful of Bruegel paintings, a handful of Dostoevsky novels and see how they do that, how they bury the lead and hide arguably the most important point. And then toward the end, we'll start to ask the question, why? Why would they do this? It's a bit of a curious thing to do. We will get there. A little bit of words about aim and scope. So I'm not trying to prove influence. I'm not, not claiming that Dostoevsky looked at a Bruegel painting and said, I'm going to do that in my novels. Um, we do know that Dostoevsky was familiar with Bruegel paintings. We have kind of journals and diary entries where he's written about museum visits that certainly had Bruegel pieces in their collection. But I wanna just see what can we distill? What can we draw out from just what they do? How they hide these details? So we'll pay attention to the what they hide, how they hide it, why they hide it. I'm assuming that these are deliberate decisions. You know, Bruegel didn't paint the whole thing and then say, oops, this was meant to be about Icarus and I forgot <laughs> to put him in, I'll put some little legs. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a deliberate compositional decision. Um, and that is as true of a painting as it is of a novel. So as we go, we'll pay attention to some Bruegel paintings first. We'll get familiar with how this works, and then we'll look at some novels.
part one, visual poetics of distraction, implication, and double take recognition. Okay, we ready for more interaction? Yes. Got our eyes, now we know what we're looking for. <laughs> okay, tell me what you notice. Waldo. <laughs> it feels like that, it feels like that. Just what do we notice? Lots of people. Cave dwelling. What's that? Cave dwelling. Cave dwelling. A house on a rock. House on a rock. Lots of people in red coats on horses. Lots of red coats and horses. So like a wheel on the top of a tall stick. Yeah. Yeah, that is a Netherlandish torture device, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. It looks like there are three figures kneeling down to a lady in front of a lady. Yeah, kind of in this front corner, yep. Is that a skeleton or a skull? There is a, yeah, there is a skull there. A horse or something? Mm -hmm. It's like a windmill up on top of a mountain. Windmill, mm -hmm. Storm approaching. Storm approaching, it's kind of darker on one side than the other. Is that what's happening there? That's one person. She she appears to be weeping. She oh, weeping! There's a lot of like little people gathered around circle up in the uh huh the top right corner. What do you say? Cross, one cross. Where's the cross? Oh. Yeah. 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 Tiny so in the very center of the painting, Christ is buckling under the weight of his cross, hmm. but we didn't notice it. And I can tell you this screen is bigger than these paintings would have been. So if you're having a hard time seeing it on a screen this large, it would have been even smaller. But yeah, we come to this. This is Bruegel's painting of Christ carrying the cross through the road to Calvary. It's a panoramic landscape, as you can see, with more than 150 individual figures. Someone took the time to count them. Um, in the midst of all of the chaos, in the very center of the painting, Christ is buckling under the weight of his cross. And even though he's in the center, he's almost completely hidden from view. All the other figures are busy and appear unmoved by or totally ignorant of what's happening in the center of this painting, uninterested in an event that everyone in the 16th century would have known would become the defining event of Christian history and all of human history. So how has Bruegel done this? First of all, it's an anachronistic setting. You know, this is not the Holy Land in the first century. This is 16th century Netherlands, a bit stylized, but 16th century Netherlands. The clothing that they wear is of the time, except for these figures in the front, whose clothing is just from the 15th century, from one century before. But it's a setting foreign to the biblical time and place. So it's anachronistic. We're not expecting to see Christ in the middle of a 16th century Dutch landscape. But then these three figures we've got, once we see Christ and start to put the pieces together, these would be um, John and the three Marys who are here weeping in the corner. So that's kind of a clue that there's something, something happening of religious significance. But we're distracted by crowds of people, their attention is divided, and our eyes kind of bounce. I'm sure you had this experience looking at it. Your eyes bounce around the picture, just trying to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. 
so our, our attention is scattered. And then if you notice, there's kind of movement toward the upper right corner. And if you could get even closer, you would see that in that circle of people gathering, there are already two crosses standing. So this is the moment that Christ is carrying his cross up to the procession where his cross will be lifted in the middle of those two. So in that motion, we come back. And then as you noticed, right in the center is Christ carrying the cross. He's inconspicuous. He's dressed in muted colors. He blends in with the terrain behind him. And really the only distinctive thing about his figure in this painting is the cross that frames him. That's how we identify him. But again, as with Icarus, once we see that detail, the rest of the painting starts to make some sense. So we've got John and the three Marys. We've got um, some kind of funny anachronistic bits like in the little cart, if you can see this cart, there are two thieves confessing their sins to a Dominican uh, monk and a Franciscan monk. So anachronism again, but these thieves are on their way to the cross as well. Simon um, of Cyrene, who would carry Jesus' cross, is also there in the painting. Um, he's right about here where the soldiers are pulling this man away. He has dropped a lamb, probably a hint at the, at the um, sacrificial death of Christ. And then the sky darkening is surely a reference to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. That the sky darkened for those hours. So again, all of these things only make sense when we've seen that central image. You may um, feel as I did when I first looked at it, I thought, oh my goodness, I missed it. Christ is dead center and I missed it. Um, but that makes us kind of like all the other figures in the painting. They're indifferent, paying attention to other things, distracted with other things, ignorant and indifferent to the sufferings of Christ. And I think in a painting like this, it's fair to say that Bruegel has depicted not only physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. These people are showing, he's visually depicting a spiritual inattentiveness to something of great significance. And Bruegel has implicated us in that same failure of recognition. Okay, we're ready for another one? Yeah. <laughs> see what we see. It's, what was that painting, by the way? Was it that was Christ Carrying the Cross. Okay, mm -hmm. And these are all from the, like, 1560s. So what do we see? Snow. Snow. Yeah. <clears throat> lining up to a barn or a house. Yeah, there's people gathering, doing something in this corner. Is that water in the sort of ice? Ice. ice. Sorry, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah, frozen water. Frozen. Yeah. Frozen water. <laughs> <laughs> Any other things we notice? Huh? Very on donkey. Yes, good eye. So right here. Again, kind of front and center. We have Mary on a donkey, Joseph next to her, carrying his carpenter's saw. So again, when we come to this painting, it's a 16th century, you know, Dutch town. We're primed to not expect to see Mary there. Um, there are bustling crowds, villagers doing all different kinds of winter activities. And as you notice, the colors are quite muted. 
So nothing mm-hmm. stands out. It's kind of, whereas the other one had all the bright reds, this one is kind mm-hmm. of flat. Um, so it's hidden in that way. But yeah, we've got Mary riding a donkey, Joseph next to her, hidden here. And Jesus, of course, is also in this painting, an additional layer of hiding in the womb of Mary. Again, once we see them, they become the interpretive key for what's happening all around. So we've got the ox and the donkey. Uh, Some of the symbolism in this painting is quite interesting. You've got kind of a time of day that maybe sunrise or sunset, a bit unclear, but that was common symbolism for the end of the Old Testament era and the beginning of the new, kind of the close of one era, the beginning of another. You've also got um, kind of some ruins of a castle as well as a church, and those were also seen to be a symbol of the Old Testament giving way to the new. Just like in the previous painting, all the other figures are not paying attention. You know, they're all doing something at this tavern or not quite sure what that is. Interpreters disagree, but they're doing other things, preoccupied with other matters. And we too, again, failed to recognize at first. Okay, one more. You guys are getting good at this. Which is this painting? This is the um, census at Bethlehem. Yes. What do we see? Snow. Snow! (laughs) Even more snow! Castle in the background. Castle in the background. Yeah. It's a bit harder to see the figures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely harder. I think this is the trickiest one. Like carrying something downstairs or building the stairs somewhere. Down in the front, right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite details is this little kid who's like pushing himself on the ice mm-hmm. down in that bottom corner. There's a big long post or stick or something here for that. Uh-huh. It's holding it up. Yeah. Is that like cathedral? That scaffolding. You know, I'm not quite sure. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. See some donkeys, it looks like. A couple donkeys in the middle. I think this is one of the hardest ones. And I think in part, it's because of the falling snow. Like our, our vision is obstructed um, by the falling snow. And this is actually, interestingly, the first painting on record of falling precipitation. Um, So that's interesting. Um, But yeah, the the snow makes it hard to see what's going on. We've got muted colors similar to the one before, bustling crowds. These are becoming familiar. Bruegel likes these things. In the left corner, is that the stable where there's some man kneeling? Yes. Good eye. Yes. So this is Bruegel's adoration of the Magi. Good eye. And I had to do some research on this. It was never cropped. So it was always meant to be kind of half cut off Mm -hmm. in the corner corner of the painting. Mm -hmm. So Bruegel has made that decision. We've got the snow falling. We've got all the crowds. But then in this bottom right corner, the Magi have come bringing gifts to honor Christ. This looks like the second part of the first painting where they made around the same time. These were all made in the 1560s. So it is kind of a series. Right previous. These two. 
are they related at all? Because there's like snow still. And like yeah, the they're similar. Um, I don't know that they're any more strongly related than some of the others. It looks like if it were yeah. a town, it would be like the same town. A different part. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, familiar landscape. Yeah. So we, we're kind of getting used to this pattern. We're distracted. We don't see it. We see it. Everything else starts to make sense. We've got another church and a ruined castle here. Um, and I think the snow is kind of interesting because you've got this contrast between something momentary and fleeting and then history altering event happening at the same time. And we as viewers, if we're honest with ourselves, we're more like the villagers than the Magi, at least at first. So a bit of a summary. So what does Bruegel do in all of these paintings? He distracts us from kind of the main theme of the painting. He makes deliberate compositional decisions like big crowds, anachronisms, the way he uses color that kind of provoke us to ignore or dismiss what is arguably the main point of the painting. But then we notice it, we do a double take and the whole rest of the painting starts to make sense. <laughs> um, notably, these paintings would not have been given titles. It wasn't conventional to title paintings until later. I think that makes it even more powerful. You know, you wouldn't see it there with a sign that says Adoration of the Magi, <laughs> cluing you into what you're looking for. But would he have had a title in mind? Um, a bit unclear. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have a lot of kind of record about Bruegel and his decisions. So most of the study is just by looking at his paintings. But we would know that this was the Magi because of something he had said or... Yeah, probably like a, a gallery record or something like that. Yeah. So this pattern that we've seen... Can you point out some important things in that painting? Yes. I can't see anything important. Yes. So this is, this is the Adoration of the Magi um, in their gold robes okay. and kneeling. Yeah. That is what's happening here. And then kind of in the background between the buildings, got this like church. Um, I would say those are probably the, the biggest things to notice in this one. A church in the mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that pattern that we've noticed in the visual arts, we're now gonna make a shift to Dostoevsky. So we're jumping from 16th century Netherlands to 19th century Russia. Uh, but we're going to find something surprisingly similar in Dostoevsky's novels. The, the way that we come to a Dostoevsky novel, has anyone read? If you've read any? Yeah, they're intimidating. They're big. Uh, they're complex. Every character goes by like eight different names. It's confusing. <laughs> um, if it's a good edition, it will have a list of all the characters and the different names they go by in the front cover. That's uh, how you know you're in for it. But... But when we come to a novel like this, we are, we're implicated readers. We're brought into uh, these scenes. And in a similar way to Bruegel, we're kind of distracted from arguably the main point. Um, and it's only on a double take that we start to see where Bruegel has, where Dostoevsky has hidden references to Christ, um, references to the Holy Family that shed light and give hope to scenes that seem otherwise hopeless and that bring um, kind of metaphysical questions to mind where they wouldn't have been otherwise. We're gonna start with Crime and Punishment. Who has read Crime and Punishment? Got a few, yeah, it's a good one to start with. Um, big picture of Crime and Punishment. 
it's a third person narrative, but you are essentially in the head of a man who has committed murder. You find that out at the very beginning of the novel. So that's not a spoiler because you <laughs> you find that out and then you still have about 500 pages to go. Um, so he has committed murder and most of the novel um, is just him being anxiously burdened, but not really repentant and him wrestling with himself. Am I going to turn myself in? Am I not? Uh, but not showing genuine repentance the entirety of the novel. After hundreds of pages of that, we come to this passage. So one particular day of his Siberian exile, this is after he's been convicted, sent to Siberia to the labor camps, this main character, Raskolnikov, he goes outside, sits on a pile of wood, looks out into the distance, and he's joined by Sonia, who's been a companion um, to him throughout the novel. And this is how the narrator describes the scene. I'll read it out loud. Early in the morning, about six o'clock, Skolnikov went to work in a shed on the riverbank where gypsum was baked in a kiln and afterwards ground. Only three workers went there. One of them took a guard and went back to the fortress to get some tool. The second began splitting firewood and putting it into the kiln. Skolnikov walked out of the shed and right to the bank, sat down on some logs piled near the shed, and began looking at the wide, desolate river. From the high bank, a wide view of the surrounding countryside opened out. A barely audible song came from the far bank opposite. There, on the boundless sunbathed steppe, nomadic yurts could be seen, like barely visible black specks. There was freedom. There a different people lived, quite unlike those here. Their time itself seemed to stop, as if the centuries of Abraham and his flocks had not passed. Raskolnikov sat and stared fixedly, not tearing his eyes away. His thought turned to reverie, to contemplation. He was not thinking of anything, but some anguish troubled and tormented him. Suddenly, Sonia was beside him. She came up almost inaudibly and sat down next to him. So summary, Raskolnikov is in Siberia. He's sitting on a pile of logs, kind of looking out. And then the very next paragraph in this pretty nondescript setting, Raskolnikov begins to weep, to repent, and to undergo some sort of resurrection. It reads, how he happened, he himself did not know. How it happened, he himself did not know. But suddenly, it was as if something lifted him and flung him down at her feet. He wept and embraced her knees. For the first moments, she was terribly frightened and her whole face went numb. She jumped up and looked at him trembling, but all at once, in the same moment, she understood everything. Infinite happiness lit up in her eyes. She understood, and for her, there was no longer any doubt that he loved her, loved her infinitely, and that at last the moment had come. They wanted to speak, but could not. Tears stood in their eyes. They were both pale and thin, but in those pale, sick faces, there already shone the dawn of a renewed future, of a complete resurrection into the new life. They were resurrected by love. The heart of each held infinite sources of life for the heart of the other. So in one paragraph to the next, page 548 and 549, we have moved from Raskolnikov sitting on a pile of logs to him weeping in repentance, and the narrator uses this language of resurrection and new life. 
And I will be honest, when I first read this, I went back to my professor and I said, I don't buy it. I put the book on her desk and I said, I don't buy it. It's been 548 pages of unrepentance. And then in the epilogue, last moment, here we go, tie a bow on it. See, everything turns out good. You know, I didn't buy it at all. And Olga said, go home, open this passage and open your Bible. And I said, well, where should I open my Bible? (laughs) And she said, um, well, we're not going to go there yet. So uh, one of the ways that we're distracted from what's actually happening here is that the narrator doesn't believe it either. You kind of get that tone in the way that the narrator describes it as incomprehensible. So Raskolnikov, again, one day, he's an unrepentant non-believer, and then he goes and sit on a bunch of logs on a riverbank, and he gets up a new person. Not quite plausible. But I did what I was asked to do. I opened my Bible to Genesis 22. And I started to see some pretty surprising parallels between the description of where Raskolnikov is sitting on this pile of logs and what happens in Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the story when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. Both passages begin with this early in the morning phrase. um, And we've got multiple points of contact. We've got kind of stacks of firewood, the number of workers where there are kind of three and then some are sent away. So it ends up only being two who end up in the scene, Abraham and Isaac, Raskolnikov and Sonia. And, you know, this would seem a bit tentative and a bit far-fetched if Dostoevsky hadn't given us that simile, as if the centuries of Abraham had never passed. I think that's a clue um, that this really is there. So what do we make of this? Raskolnikov, this unrepentant murderer, sits on a pile of logs and is reborn. A hint at a story of Abraham and Isaac. But here Raskolnikov is put in the position of Isaac. Interesting, because the whole novel, he has been sacrificing other people for his ideology. And here he is put in the position of the one who is to be sacrificed. But not just the one who is to be sacrificed, the one who receives a substitute sacrifice in the ram that is provided. I think it's only in light of the subtext of Genesis 22 that Raskolnikov's repentance makes sense. He sits on the logs of sacrifice in the place of the one who would receive a substitute. And that is when he is reborn. I think it's so important that for this character, all of this happens on an experiential level, not on an ideological level. He's been in his head the whole time. And then something happens existentially and experientially. He inhabits the story of the gospel as foretold in Abraham and Isaac. And as readers, if you're anything like me, I didn't buy this at first. Um, But I was shocked out of my cynicism in finding that subtext. I kind of stumbled over the hope of the resurrection that's embedded in this passage in a way that I hope you feel is kind of similar to Bruegel. We're brought in, it seems like a mundane scene. We're not expecting to find much here, but there's this hint of something that then makes sense of things that would otherwise be inexplicable. 
So now we're turning from crime and punishment to demons. Anyone read demons? Wouldn't really expect it. It's um, it's worth reading. It is one of the harder ones. Um, demons is Dostoevsky is kind of exploring this circle of radical revolutionaries in demons and all of the characters are very hardened men. And in this story, Dostoevsky kind of capitalizes on our cynicism. He gets us to, he kind of has us in a position where the least thing we would expect to find is a hint of something holy and redemptive. And in this one, there's a very subtle allusion to the Holy Family, to Mary and Joseph and Jesus, that's quite stunning. So early on in the novel, there's this character, Ivan Shatov, and we're told super briefly about his marriage to a woman named Maria. It takes all of a few lines in the story. Toward the end of the novel, um, this estranged wife, Maria, comes back. She returns and she's pregnant and she's about to go into labor and it is not Shatov's son. It is the son of the revolutionary leader, Stavrogin. So she returns about to go into labor. And as she nears the end of her labor, this other character, Kirilov, who is a suicidal atheist who had been Stavrogin's disciple and who hated Shatov. So keeping this character straight is tough, but this, um, yeah, this atheist, is seeing her about to go into labor and he launches into this very religious language, this speech about eternal harmony and love and joy and resurrection and new birth. And you're thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you don't expect it from him. We as readers were inclined to dismiss as absurd or delusional all that he's saying. And Shatov is too, he dismisses it. And he tells Kirilov that he's, his raving is probably some impending mental illness. So it's just completely dismissed as nonsense. But then Kirilov's apparently exaggerated claims take on flesh, so to speak. The narrator starts to, to describe the baby that's born and speaks about how Maria and Shatov, this couple who had been estranged, and Kirilov, this atheist in the mix, the three of them stand in awe of this newborn child whose birth somehow ushers in resurrection and reconciliation. Here's the passage. This is right after the baby is born. Everything seemed transformed. Shatov now wept like a little boy, now said God knows what, wildly, dazedly, inspiredly. He kissed Maria's hands. She listened with rapture, perhaps not even understanding, but tenderly touching his hair with a weakened hand, smoothing it, admiring it. He talked to her of Kirilov, of how they were now going to start living anew and forever, the existence of God, of everyone being good. In rapture, they again took the baby out to look at him. So all of this sounds a bit artificial and contrived to a reader who has come to know the hardened character of these men. Shatov is a radical socialist turned Russian idealist. Kirilov is an atheist and revolutionary. We're not expecting resurrection, reconciliation, and renewal in these men. But as here, as in Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky has given us a little hint that there's something more happening. There's a very subtle, easily overlooked allusion to Christ that happens just a few pages before this. 
one of the characters suggests that Shatov send this child to the orphanage. It's not his son after all, it's the son of Stavrogan. He ought to get rid of the son. And Shatov exclaims, never will he go to the orphanage. He is my son. Hmm. And if you're hearing maybe the words of God the Father at the transfiguration and the baptism, this is my son. There's a hint here that these scandalously unworthy figures are a picture of the Holy Family. We, if we take that and we start to run with it, other bits of the story start to make sense. We think of Maria's own name, the Russian equivalent of Mary. We think of a mistake that she made on her way to deliver the child. She mistook one street name for another, and the two street names meant Ascension and Epiphany. And she gives birth to this son on Epiphany Street. Fascinating. This also <clears throat> Joseph, he's not the real father of, of Jesus, you know? So, yeah. There could be a, hints of that too, uh, of the fatherhood not being the kind of immediate father figure. Yeah, it's quite a scandalous connection, but it may be there. So again, as, as in the Bruegel paintings, the kind of historical and political context of the novel, we are not expecting the Holy Family in this 19th century circle of Russian revolutionaries. It's unexpected, it's shocking, but here it is, the infant Christ, an allusion to the infant Christ, bringing renewal to hardened people. Our final example, is from The Idiot. This is my personal favorite Dostoevsky novel. That is an unpopular opinion, but I'm happy to talk to you afterward about why I love it so much. So in The Idiot, uh, the man who introduces the theological theme, um, he's an untrustworthy, drunken rambler. He just, everything he says is ridiculous and over the top and absurd and all the characters dismiss him throughout the novel. And in the scene I wanna look at, he starts to proclaim things that are just absurd, just outright absurd. And so we as readers, like all the other characters, write it off and dismiss it. So the protagonist in the story, this scene happens as the protagonist, Prince Mishkin, comments in dismay that he doesn't know the circumstances surrounding how his father had been on trial for alleged manslaughter and he's wanting to know what was true about my father. What happened? Was he charged for this crime? Was he not? And in this scene, General Evolgen, already shown to be a drunkard and a compulsive liar, launches into an absurd and impossible story. It's quite funny, so I hope you enjoy. Here's the story. Oh, it was that case to do with Private Kolpakov, and without a doubt, the prince would have been vindicated. The court recessed without any decision, an impossible case, a mysterious case, one might say. Staff Captain Larionov, the commander of the detachment, dies. The prince is assigned to perform his duties temporarily. Good. Private Kolpakov commits a theft, a theft, footgear from a comrade, and drinks it up. Good. The prince, and mark you, this was in the presence of a sergeant major and a corporal, reprimands Kolpakov and threatens him with a birching. Very good. Kolpakov goes to the barracks, lies down on his bunk, and a quarter of an hour later, he dies. Splendid, but it's an unexpected, an almost impossible case. Thus and so, Kolpakov is buried. The prince makes a report after which Kolpakov is struck from the rolls. What could be better, you might think? 
But exactly six months later, at the Brigade Review, at the Brigade Renew, Private Kolpakov turns up, as if nothing had happened, in the 3rd Detachment of the 2nd Battalion of the Novozemlyansky Infantry Regiment, same brigade and same division. So what has happened? Ivolgin has just told this story, saying that Mishkin's father had been charged of manslaughter and the man that he killed, yes, he died, but then he turned up later, so it's fine. <laughs> That's essentially the story that he has just told. Evolgen is an unreliable narrator. He uh, tells this absurd story and all the other characters and we think, you're crazy. <laughs> and he knows that they're all thinking that. And he even acknowledges the temptation to dismiss his story. He says, I'd be the first to say it's a trick, but to my misfortune, I was a witness. I served personally on the commission. All the confrontations showed that this was the very same, absolutely the very same Kolpakov who had been buried six months earlier with routine ceremony and the role of drums. So he's saying, you know, well, I, it is crazy. I know it's crazy, but I was there. I was a witness. He's testifying to this ridiculous story. So caught up in the tale, we may start to forget why he started to tell this story to begin with. It was because Mishkin wanted to know why his father had been charged and whether his father was guilty of manslaughter or not. And Evolgen tells the story to say, well, yes, technically he beat the man and then the man died, but the man lives again, so it doesn't matter. He's cleared. He's innocent. And in this kind of psychobabble is the very logic of redemption. If the victim's death is annulled, the perpetrator can be forgiven. Unlikely and mysterious as the outcome may seem, the death has been undone, and so the one who caused it doesn't need to be guilty. I hope you're hearing an echo of the redemption that we have in Christ. By annulling death in his resurrection, Christ is able to clear those who have crucified him. It's in light of this logic of resurrection and the forgiveness of Christ that other details of this episode and the whole story start to make sense. So I hope as I was reading it, you heard the kind of silliness of Evolgen's story. He says, good, good, very good, splendid, as he's telling this story. Maybe you hear some echoes of the creation story. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good, and it was very good. The name of the regiment that Kolpakov turns back up in translates to new world or new land, as in a new creation. And this little anecdote, this silly anecdote that we want to write off, I think it brings hope to a novel that is otherwise dominated by death. A lot of this novel, um, it's grotesque and it's brutal and it's hard to read. And even at the very end, a character who's named Nastasia, which is resurrection or resurrected, and her surname Barashkov, lamb, she's killed in the end. So this seems like a brutal and hopeless story, but we've got this little hint of a silly story of resurrection. And then we have another theme throughout the novel, which is a Hans Holbein painting of the dead Christ, which is, it's a painting that's six feet long by two feet tall. And it's kind of a side view of Christ in the tomb. And the characters talk about this painting all the time. 
and put together, you've got a painting of a dead Christ and a ridiculous story of a resurrection. And when you think about that together, you're starting to get the gospel story. The Christ who has died and against all likelihood has come back such that we can be forgiven. So it's this very story that I think Dostoevsky has hidden in there, but then distracted us from. So we may not catch it at first. Okay, so those are our examples. I want to just spend a few moments thinking about why. <laughs> like, okay, it's cool, but why does Bruegel does, do this? Why does Dostoevsky do this? The, the first is we might want to consider, perhaps it was a time of censorship. You know, perhaps they couldn't depict stories from Christianity openly, so they had to hide it and make it really secret. But that wasn't true in 16th century Netherlands or in 19th century Russia. So that won't work. When we look to try to explain it by external motivation, nothing quite makes sense of why they do what they do. And it really is a surprising pattern. It's across different centuries, across different continents, across different genres, across denominational phenomenon. You know, this is showing up in places and contexts that are quite different. So if we can't explain it externally, Maybe we can consider internal motivations. Maybe there's something about like what they hide that means it's better dealt with this way than in another way. In these cases that we've looked at, what they hide is distinctively Christian. It's a reference to Christ, a reference to the Holy Family, a reference to the resurrection. Maybe particular theological truths call for particular treatment. So I'll, I'll give four kind of potential explanations that I see. One, and this is not distinctively Christian, is just to say that an effective way to teach something is to invite someone to discover it themselves. So rather than just putting something in someone's face, if you invite someone in a process of discovery, they will learn it more deeply. That may be part of what's going on here. But I think there's more. Um, I think there's something it really fits with the incarnation. I mean, doesn't it just make sense that God should be among us and go largely unnoticed? That's the story that we have of God becoming man. And with the incarnation, as with these examples, there's some surprisingly fitting hiding places. We find the presence of the holy in the mundane, so in the day-to-day -day where we don't expect anything special, in the absurd, in situations of things that are foolish or even scandalous, and in the anachronistic. We'll talk about each one. So in the mundane, there's so many biblical passages that speak to how just in the everyday and the ordinary, God is hidden in our midst. And this prophecy from Isaiah speaks to how uh, when Christ would come, he wouldn't be that remarkable. People may not see him and immediately recognize him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected, one from whom men hid their faces. What about the absurd? You know, situations of foolishness or scandal. Well, that's language that the biblical authors are quite happy to use when they talk about Christ. We've got Paul using the language of how the cross is foolishness and scandal. And we've got the anachronistic. You know, why is it appropriate that we find 
the Holy Family in the 19th century Russian novel, or a reference to Christ in a 16th century painting. I think the incarnation is a scandal that every age has to reckon with and stumble over. What does it mean for us in our time and our place that Christ has come? And I think it's a subtle rebuke to us too, a warning that maybe we are just as blind sometimes as the crowds who crucified Jesus, as all of the peasants in Bruegel's paintings, just as blind and as prone to dismiss God as the characters in Dostoevsky's novels. So I think this really does fit with the incarnation in these ways that we find the presence of the holy where we may least expect it. I think it also fits with an understanding of faith as recognition. You know, faith not being just about what we do externally, but about being, do we see Christ for who he is? When we look at him, do we see that he is the savior of the world? The, a technique that these kind of that Bruegel and Dostoevsky use is defamiliarization, big word, lots of syllables, break it down, taking something familiar and making it unfamiliar, kind of making you see something from a new angle. So it hits you afresh in a way you haven't seen it before. That's a way that we can kind of heal the disconnect we often feel between what we know and what we feel between the head and the heart, knowledge and the affections is when we see something we thought we knew from a fresh angle. I think this is why Jesus taught in parables. You know, he told people things in a fresh way, in a new way that caused them to see themselves and the world and himself differently. Finally, I wanna talk about the logic of redemption in this hiding, which is why this whole talk is called redemptive hiding. So just to review, why would a painter or an author drag us into this temptation to dismiss, ignore, or fail to recognize the holy? They can't guarantee that we will find it, right? There's a risk. There's a huge risk. Bruegel's paintings being untitled, someone could walk past, never notice, think that's a nice scene, that's a nice landscape. A lot of people have read Dostoevsky novels and especially The Idiot and have concluded that Dostoevsky was an atheist. So it's these things, we can miss them. They can be overlooked and dismissed. And yet Bruegel and Dostoevsky still seem willing to do it. They still seem to think it's worth hiding. Why is that? I think it's because these truths that they deal with, the truth of the gospel, it can't be experienced and considered coldly or from a distance. It has to be experienced personally. Mm -hmm. Aesthetically, we become participants and not just observers. Like all the figures in the scene, we too were blind and then we notice. Mm -hmm. um, like all the characters in the novels, we too dismiss God among us, illusions to hope among us. And then we notice, and in the double take, we kind of think, oh, I had been blind and now I can see it. I didn't notice it at first. I think this is crucial because it's only when we acknowledge ourselves as having been guilty of not recognizing Christ, ultimately to the point of crucifying the Lord of glory, it's only when we acknowledge that, that we can partake in the pardon he offers. 
we have to know that we are implicated in the guilt of the crucifixion in order to partake in the hope offered by the resurrection. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. Uh, we'll take some time for some questions. I'm sure uh, there's lots of questions. I'm sure um, not just overarching questions, metaphysical, theological questions, but also um, an artistic ones, but maybe even some details that people will be interested in. Christina, I guess I was just wondering in your interpretation of the idiot, Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts of that speech being given by someone who's mentally un unwell? Mm -hmm. You seem to be drawing a lot of parallels from that speech. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the question being in the idiot, that's so that story of private Koblikov that General Evogen tells, you're asking um, kind of why, what I think the significance of the fact that it's coming from a man who is a drunkard, a compulsive liar, perhaps not mentally stable as he's telling the story, kind of why does that matter? How does that change things? But, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm guessing the answer is that, you know, Jesus <laughs> saves, like, the least, yada, yada. But I also think, like, it's the idiot is the title. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to be too, uh, I just I just wonder, yeah. I, yeah. I think I could see both sides of the argument, but I yeah. just wonder Dr. Ayoski was also making a bit of a point there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think in short, I would say that um, we find truth on the lips of the least likely and the most unworthy of prophets. And I think that's true in the biblical record as it is in Dostoevsky's novels. And I think there's quite a respect of humanity in Dostoevsky that no person is beyond saying something true. You know, even if it's out of line with their character, even if it's not expected, Dostoevsky really is masterful at capturing the fact that there is glory and ruin in any given person, and no person can be dismissed out of hand. So he does this quite often, where something quite profound is on the lips of a character who's, for some reason, untrustworthy. Um, so I find that very moving. Um, and I will say the the reference of the idiot. Um, it's an okay translation. We have different connotations with the term idiot. Um, try to think like holy fool or kind of the fool is, is perhaps a slightly better mm -hmm. translation there. And any of you who love Shakespeare may know that Shakespeare often puts profound truths on the lips of his fools as well. So there's some good literary tradition to it. Does that yeah. speak to what you're after? Yeah. In this case, I, I may have misheard something, but wasn't that speech by not the idiot? Right. So the idiot, this was, is, is Mishkin, keeping all the characters straight, Mishkin is the kind of holy fool character right. who the novel is named after. Mm -hmm. Evolgen is the one who tells the story, yeah. who is not the title character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another fool that was realized is Don Quixote. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, my son tells me that Dostoyevsky was a gambler. Mm -hmm. He was a... Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think Dostoyevsky himself as a person, like a lot of his characters, was marked by both glory and ruin. And I think we can be honest about the ways that his life was 
complicated and difficult and compromised um, without losing kind of the profundity and the beauty of what he's written. Yeah. You know, one thought that I'm having is that because my thought at first was, yeah, why hide? You know, especially in a society at this moment where it's it's almost so easy to hide. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the ones that are yelling the most, you know, there's no communication. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that the Christian can't be clear. Right. Uh, it's, it's not like an intentional hiding. Mm -hmm. You're not hiding your, your lamp under a bushel. But it's that people can't recognize that, it's, that this is truth because it's not mm -hmm. coming from the spectacle. Mm -hmm. The people are listening to the spectacle. They're looking to the wealthy, the beautiful, the powerful, mm -hmm. and they don't hear the, the simple. And so I don't, so it just seems to me that it's not that Bruegel and Dostoevsky, perhaps, I don't know, it doesn't seem like they're intentional bearing the lead. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, in the sense that they don't want you to see it. Mm -hmm. But um, are you willing to find it? Are you willing to see it? Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, that that is that Christian truth, that truism that, um, that it's not that Christ didn't want to be heard. Mm -hmm. He spoke in parables so that people would listen to those who could listen. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, and sometimes people will speak about his parables as if he was trying to be cryptic mm -hmm. but actually he's trying to communicate to those who are willing to hear mm -hmm. who, those who are willing to lean in yeah rather than just to scoff and not try to ask questions to say what did you mean by that mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's just kind of a comment but 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 in this day and age i just don't know i i feel like there's a temptation to mm -hmm. yeah rather than saying okay this means we ought to like you know if we write something, we ought to just put one teeny tiny reference to the gospel that maybe no one will ever catch. <laughs> you know, exactly. I don't. I don't think that is is our takeaway. Um, I think what Bruegel and Dostoevsky invite us to consider is not just what we communicate, but how we communicate it, and that requires knowing our audience well. So these would have been highly Christian contexts, right? In a way that maybe our world is less and less so. So there may be other ways we need to think about, okay, we have the content of the message, but how do we communicate it in a way that will be heard? Um, and I think that's consistent with the message. Yeah. And consistent yeah. with the message. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I had a somewhat related question and, and that was around um, what he could tell us how his paintings were uh received what was the reaction to his painting the by, paintings by different segments of society hmm. in his times yeah Bruegel is such an enigmatic painter to try to study we really don't know much about his life um so most scholarship we're, we kind of just have his paintings to work with um so I'm not sure we have great record of yeah. how they were received. Um, he was known in his own lifetime. We do have some stories that he would disguise himself so that he could go and be among kind of the peasant people when he was of a higher status, but he would disguise himself, which at least tells us he was well-known enough to be recognized. Um, so he had some degree of reputation as a painter. Um, he was certainly quite popular in the centuries after his death and a lot of 17th century, like the Dutch golden age, you'll kind of see ways that they were influenced by 
Brugge also in terms of the artistic tradition, he was received quite well. I was only wondering because there, there's some debate over a recent movie around the Titanic and a lot of people are knocking the, the film because it's too anachronistic. It, huh. it you know, it, 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 it's not true to the, the period. And mm -hmm. I just wondered if, if there was any Mm. Of, you know, of the anachronism of how people felt about that at that time you know it was quite common like if you study western art history mm -hmm. it's quite common to see christ and the holy family depicted in whatever would have been contemporary to the time and place mm -hmm. so i don't think he was unique in that i think he is a bit unique in the hiding though mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. christina i had a question over the, the one with um, mary yes uh, the, the title of it is it the census? Oh yes, the census at Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This one, yeah. Mm -hmm. now, I read something about what's going on in the shed, uh -huh. having to do with taxes or people mm -hmm. having to bring their lead their their livestock and mm -hmm. hand it in. Is that is that a common? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some sort of like registration. So I think in this corner, you can see a scribe is like taking down names in a ledger book. So there's some kind of recording happening. So something, you know, there is kind of a political undertone there. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in fact, the banner, quite scared in there. Uh, the banner, the kind of plaque that's on the building here, um, I believe is like a Holy Roman Empire plaque. Um, so there are some political overtones for sure. Yeah. I guess I was also wondering for Dr. Esty, was his faith views known or is this more with, like, so what were his faith alignments? Yes, Dostoevsky's personal faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dostoevsky has such an interesting story. Uh, he, you know, was raised in the Russian Orthodox Church, raised in Orthodoxy, uh, as would most people would have been in the time, um, and was quite involved, uh, but was kind of caught up with other things that wasn't the center <coughs> of his life. And in 1849, he was apprehended for being part of this literary circle, the Petrushevsky circle, which um, they were all kind of convicted of being anti-Tsarist regime. And this whole circle were convicted and sentenced to death. And they were lined up before a firing squad. And at the last moment, so these men are all preparing to die on the conviction of kind of anti-imperial sentiment. At the very last second, someone charged in and said, no, the Tsar has commuted your sentence. You're just going to Siberia for hard labor. You're not going to be killed today. And it turned out the whole thing had been staged. Mm -hmm. So it was not a last minute decision, but they had for some reason decided to kind of line these men up make them think that they were about to be killed and then send them away. And in Dostoevsky's correspondence, he marks that as a significant moment when he started to take his faith more seriously, um, understandably so, thinking about life and death. And in Siberia, the only literature they were allowed to read was the New Testament. And he, his letters record how he just read and read and read and read the New Testament in those days. And from that point forward, 
there's a noticeable kind of emphasis on Christ and his works where it hadn't been before. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Which are the latter, which are those latter works? Huh. Most of these novels are after, or after that. He had written just a few, like kind of one novel that did okay, and then a few short stories before that, I believe. Is there most a good of biography this on that. his life that's not like um, anti, sort of, or that actually, that doesn't hide his faith? Yeah, as far as a biography, I'm not sure about a straight biography. I know there are some kind of commentaries almost on his work that talk about both his life and his work. Um, like Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury wrote a book on his life and work that is pretty good. Um, recommend a few others, but that's the one that first comes to mind. Yeah. That would talk about his personal life and faith as well. What is the name of the book? Rowan Williams is the author, oh. and I think it's just called Dostoevsky is the title. Yeah. Um, but he'd be paying attention to his faith in the midst of it. Yeah. There's a question from the chat room. Uh, there's, do you think the effects of this hiding were so powerful for the audience's time since the culture was so highly Christian? Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering how Christian art and literature today can think about using these principles in art today, considering how the culture views Christianity. Oh, those are great questions. Yeah, we spoke a bit about how our time and place is different than 19th century Russia, 16th century Netherlands. Um, so I do think it's different in a, in a highly Christian culture. I mean, even to recognize the Holy Family, you know, to recognize the adoration of the Magi, that takes quite a high degree of familiarity with the gospel story to be able to notice that and to make sense of it. Um, so I think these, these kind of assume familiarity and they maybe assume that someone is quite familiar with the Christian story, but doesn't fully understand the implications. And that's certainly different than our age in the West and in Canada, where so many um, have never heard. Um, I study at Regent College in Vancouver and have had friends from different contexts that I've met who, you know, I say I moved here to study at Regent College and they say, what are you studying? And I say theology and they say, what's that? Um, so that's quite a different level of familiarity. So I do think it's different today. Um, I still think there's something to be said for kind of subtlety and inviting curiosity and inviting personal discovery. Uh, so I don't think the fact that it's unfamiliar doesn't mean that we need to like, you know, make bullet points of the gospel story on a printed piece of paper mm -hmm. and say, here you go, this is it. You know, I think there's still good, a good amount that we should pay attention to how we communicate these things artfully and just with thoughtfulness about um, wanting someone to see for themselves, you know, like not just wanting someone to take our word for it, but when if that's inviting someone to read the Bible together and doing that in a way where you're asking questions and engaging with the text in a way that invites personal discovery. As for how that shows up in creating art, um, I will defer to practicing artists on that. Um, I would love to see things done well, or if you know of things done well. I will say that in film, I think Terrence Malick does this really well where he kind of ha has some subtle illusions that invite curiosity and he doesn't explain everything, but he 
piques curiosity. Yeah. That was going to be my question. Of anything, yeah. In film, I think Terrence Malick is phenomenal. Yeah. I'm thinking about how this impacts us today, but I feel like um, there's such a hiddenness today to the biblical story, or like people in, in our culture, it's so hidden mm -hmm. that it seems like people are being interested in it because mm. they their interest is peaked because there's completely because it's unfamiliar hidden. yeah so whether it's um old testament stories or mm -hmm. looking at the new testament for the first time that yeah. i know that clark had a book up on one of our tabs for a long time about different atheists that first not atheists like agnostics that are sort of well-known figures that are sort of starting to talk about the importance of some of these things so i'm just mm -hmm. um, perhaps it's that hiddenness that mm -hmm. yeah i wonder i hadn't thought about this before but i wonder if that's a similar thing to the way that we come to this one um because probably many many Christians today may not be familiar with Ovid's metamorphoses, right? But you still look at this painting and you're like, wait, is someone drowning? <laughs> and you start asking questions. Um, so I wonder if kind of people who are not Christians today may have a similar experience with some of this art of like, wait, what is happening there? And that gets the questions turning. That's a wondering that I have, yeah. It's kind of making me think that there's like, making strange on there's like two sides of that can come from like one making strange for the people who already think that they know or are familiar with it it's like hiding it so you can open it again or yeah. something yeah and then the other side is is like peaking the curiosity of people who don't even know it's there almost mm -hmm. so it's, a, it's like a half-formed thought but i think that's interesting that people can come to the same hidden thing either thinking they know everything yeah. or not being completely unfamiliar at all. Yeah. And, and uh both people need to like have that that new way of seeing what like my poetry prof used to say your job as a poet is to rehabilitate old cliches mm -hmm. and i think that's, that's, that's kind of what seems to be happening yeah yeah. yeah you use the language of making strange and that's yeah. kind of similar to that defamiliarization i right. find that really helpful language right. yeah you know, I was thinking, like, maybe it's not actually hidden, really, maybe we're just so dull, like, maybe our hearts are so dull, because I think about um, the uh, crime and punishment, where, where Sonia was there the whole time, and she's yeah. this sacrificial she character, is. but she's so um, disregarded. And so like, you kind of wonder, like, maybe it's like a statement that these things are actually here in the open. They're there all along. They're, they're like offering mm -hmm. the whole time. Mm -hmm. And yet it's like something that we can't appreciate. Mm -hmm. Right. And it might be, you know, I, I think, you know, you well, it's pretty, that guy's there in the water, you know, <laughs> like the story of Icarus and there he is. Like it's, um, but you just wonder if it's a statement, like our hearts have become dull. It's right there. It's right mm -hmm. there, you know? Mm -hmm. I think there's probably an element of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's some technical questions on the chat. Uh, and I think that you dealt with a little bit, but was 
Bruegel's paintings, were they hanging in a museum? Were they well known to the public? Mm. Because often we think of high art as something yeah. that we're not in touch with culturally. Yeah. Was he culturally known and, uh, and did people get it? That was is he a good in discussion? Question. Yes, he was certainly in discussion among artists. Um, in terms of a general population in his own time, I would have to brush up on some reception studies there. Um, in the Netherlands, it's interesting because in the 17th century, so the next century, you have this kind of flourishing of the visual arts in such a way that one of the main drivers of the Dutch economy was the art market. And that even like families who were not super wealthy would have dozens of paintings. So there's this flourishing of art and this literacy around art that you could assume for the general population a century after Bruegel. In terms of his own lifetime, though, I don't, I'm not quite fresh on that. Mm -hmm. I, I just want, um, so now I can get to say what I want to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I just, uh, I loved your presentation. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I think it does show to Christians who want to be involved in art that uh, I think that what Dostoevsky and Bruegel both do is show hum the humanity mm -hmm. to show to show who we are as creatures rather than so much Christian art, especially in the moment when the world is hard of hearing. And I don't know if they haven't always been hard of hearing, but Christians almost feel like they have to make it explicit mm -hmm. and so explicit that it becomes sentimentality mm -hmm. or religious propaganda mm -hmm. rather than something that when a, people look into an artist that is Christian, because I know some people say, well, I'm an artist who is a Christian. I'm not mm -hmm. a Christian artist mm -hmm. because they're really wanting to say my art is informed by my Christian worldview, but I'm not trying to make propaganda. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that, um, that God um, that through the spirit can be at work in my art mm -hmm. to to speak about what it means to be human what the world is about mm -hmm. who god is where is it going and um it mm -hmm. just seems that what you've shown us today especially for christians who want to be artists that way mm -hmm. um, that there's something almost inauthentic about uh Christian music, Christian art, if it's propagandistic, mm -hmm. it ends up being antithetical to the very gospel. Yeah. I mean, Jesus wasn't tall, attractive, and a big orator and wealthy. He came as a disregarded person that had no, mm -hmm. nothing remarkable about him, but yet people who heard him heard pow the power of his truth. And I don't even know if it was just the signs, because, mm -hmm. you know, some people started coming on signs, and so he refused to give signs, because mm -hmm. he was like, just because I can get people into the church, quote yeah. unquote, doesn't mean that that's what I'm about mm -hmm. uh, because can they handle the cross? Yeah. And so uh, I just, I think that that is reflected in your mm -hmm. lecture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think for, for Christian artists, it's an <coughs> invitation to be steeped in the scriptures because it, it will come out of you <laughs> as you create things. And I think that was true of these, of both Bruegel and Dostoevsky. They're so steeped in this Christian story that when they write, these things come out um, in ways that don't feel forced or overdone. Yeah. Like yeah. 
Yeah, just thinking uh, in movies, it certainly happens, the, the subtleties yeah. in, in movies. And I can't remember the the chap whose name, I think it's, what's uh, Shmalen, what's his name, the, the director? Oh, Night Shmalen. Yes, Night Shmalen. Okay, what's the movie where um, they have these visitations? And anyway, yeah, science. I'm, I'm okay, so okay. bad with films. <laughs> so, so anyway, but in the, and this is from a course that I took at Regent actually, but that this is um, uh, a pastor who has failed and, and, and he's rejected his faith and so on. But on the wall, there is the outline, kind of the, 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 um, uh, the, the mark of the cross that used to be mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. which kind of hints that, you know, that there is a possibility of, coming back mm. of redemption and mm. so on mm -hmm. anyway but, but there's lots of yeah. things in movies as yes. art, and I think yeah the subtle where the subtlety really comes across yeah 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 so we have that print of um the census one. the census uh -huh. yeah it's in our kitchen and mm -hmm. when people come in of course the christians are all like oh look at mary you know <laughs> but uh, other people are going and you and uh, why i'm mentioning this is some of the things that clark brought up the humanity because people are <clears throat> very struck with the fact that there's uh, in a corner a leper with a leper's bell mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the children, the way they're playing mm -hmm. with the slides or slides. Uh, they're just things that um, this was a very difficult time. Apparently it was supposed to be a medieval, but one of the worst winters yeah. that they mm -hmm. had. So knowing those things really strike people. Yeah. Um, and in that context, when they finally see <laughs> Miriam, you know, which sometimes I've had to point out, but that's mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. um, they're oh, oh, right there. And they go, well, no, this isn't Palestine, but yeah. you know, but they 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 are discovering. Right. It is in the midst in of the our midst humanity. Of humanity. Yeah, 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 that's good. It's very it's very interesting. That's reactions. quite good. Yeah. yeah this... I was just thinking about like go back to the propaganda thing I, I, I like there is this we require this divine sight like it's not just us trying to work up the recognition mm -hmm. or look really hard um and like I def, you know my backgrounds in literature uh and novels have come to me at the right time where it's like yeah. suddenly I was prime or sometimes I read a book yeah. one you know one year and then five years later I read it again and I was mm -hmm. like oh now it makes sense right and so I think there's that, that's there's, that relates to Jesus' parables too, but like that we trust that we don't have to make everything propagandistic because it actually takes God's power to reveal Himself yeah. to people, mm -hmm. and so so that's like that's something different you come to mm -hmm. art with as a as a Christian yeah. artist or whatever. That's yeah, really good. God, you can, yeah, the you place of revelation in it. The truth here mm -hmm. in a way that's particular to that. Yeah, yeah. and that is how I feel even of like how I came to notice these things. I mean, I started with that photograph of my advisor and I feel like so much of these insights are things that I received from her. Mm. And that's kind of a small parable of like, yeah, we receive insight. It's not just mm. something we muster up or we're particularly sharp or observant. So we catch it and others don't. It's, it is something that we receive. Um, and I'll point out if, um, 
if you're interested in reading Dostoevsky and kind of catching some of these things, the uh, the PVR and Volokonsky are the kind of husband-wife translator couple that are phenomenal. Um, I recommend their translations and their footnotes are a treasure trove. <laughs> so when there are like references to parts of the Orthodox liturgy or to the gospels or just anywhere in the scriptures, they will put a footnote and kind of help you catch those things. What are their so, names? Uh, Richard PVR and Larissa Volokonsky. Um, yeah, they're great. Oh, that's one more. That's a two-part question. Yes, one more that's a two-part. We'll go for it. <laughs> pretty easy. Um, is Dostoevsky's, if I say it right, Dostoevsky's I'm probably not saying it. The reader in the mind of the uh, main character mm -hmm. a common theme across his novels or just mm -hmm. in crime and punishment? Yeah, the kind of narrative and point of view in Dostoevsky is fascinating. In, um, in crime and punishment, it's third person, so it's not actually, you know, yeah. you're not hearing Raskolnikov's internal monologue, but you might as well be. Like, it's like so it's closely like told. So it's like a narrator who has access to all of his thoughts is what it seems like. But in different novels, um, it'll be different. And even in some of his novels, most of his novels, you'll have a narrator like that, but who seems to have access to a lot of characters, but not all of characters' interior lives. So it's not totally an omniscient narrator, but one who seems privileged to the minds of some characters and not others, which is interesting because some you get insight into their thoughts and some you only see how other characters perceive them. Um, but he, there's a whole kind of subfield of Dostoevsky studies in what's called polyphony like kind of multiple sounds and the way this comes out of a literary critic named Mikhail Bakhtin, who's also fantastic that he wrote a whole book called like problems of Dostoevsky's poetics. And he talks a lot about polyphony as this phenomenon where you kind of, you have the voices and perspectives of different characters and there's no overriding voice who's telling you which one is true, but they're kind of all set in the novel and you as the reader are, exposed to and kind of you have access to these different ideas and points of view and what's happening but you're not kind of told how to think or what the conclusion is so point of view that's probably more than you were asking point of view is really interesting in his novels what's well, part two yeah what I mean, what do you think i'm curious what you think the effect dostoevsky's purpose in using that approach is not taking it has any connection to the similarity or a commonality that you found between him yeah. and, uh, him and That's interesting. I don't know that I've thought about the connection between him and Bruegel on that in particular. Um, but I do think, uh, we were just talking about this beforehand, I think Dostoevsky, he kind of, <coughs> he sets different ideologies and different worldviews and different characters, and then he sets them loose. And he doesn't, like as an author, I don't think he controls how the story goes as much as as you may think. And um, I think there's a degree of humility and risk in that that's kind of similar to the hiding is he's like critics can come away reading the idiot and say he's an atheist or say this is a testament to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you can come away from the novel with both of those conclusions. I think one is a better reading than another, but um, but both are possible. And I think he was very committed 
to kind of, yeah, creating characters who are human and not easy to pin down and not easy to resolve and storylines that are about as complex as human life gets um, without giving easy resolution. Yeah. Oh. Thank Should we you. Wrap up? Yeah. You like parting words. I invite you to pay attention. <laughs> look around you and pay attention. Spend time. Look at paintings for more than three seconds. Um, <laughs> read slowly. Read closely. Know the scriptures well. And be attuned that you just may find the presence of God where you least expect him on the lips of unworthy and unholy prophets in the mundane and the absurd and even in the scandalous because he is there even if we can't see him at first. Thank you. Thank you.